I'm very grateful for this opportunity to uh, preach in this service. I remember that the first time I did that was 50 years ago when I used to come in the summers to lead evening worship whilst Maurice Barnett, the minister then, took his annual leave. Um, it's been rarer since then, and it's lovely to be back. I, I hope uh, it won't seem invidious to anybody if I just turn and thank the choir for that truly extraordinary rendering of Mozart, and uh, perhaps, Roz, thank you to you. I watched your son uh, recognizing his mother's presence from the back of the hall, and one day perhaps you'll sing a duet together in the future. Don't hide his light under a bushel, all right? Uh, but thank you, to, thank you, of course, to the choir as a whole. It was truly wonderful. Tony passed me a note to say that he wants it at his funeral. So the choir must live long enough uh, to be around to do that then. It is good to be here. Uh, the story about the Samaritan woman is a good one for this Sunday, just accidentally as it happens, that stands at the end of um, the International uh, Women's World Day of Prayer and the International Women's Day that has taken place and been celebrated through the week. Um, and uh, I've deliberately chosen a hymn before I preach and afterwards that were written by women uh, in order to honor that particular kind of recognition. But I have learned other hymns whilst I've been here you see, I'm a stodgy, old-fashioned sort of uh, dinosaur, really, in terms of the hymns that I sing. I can hear the heads nodding behind me. Um, but I have learned two, and I just want to disabuse you of one thing. A strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Well, I am a Lord, but I want you to know that in this place there is only one Lord, and it isn't me, okay? I just want, in case anybody had any illusions. Um, and then the South African piece, we walk in his way, um, a salient reminder of the message of this day. Well, now, um, here we are with the woman at the well in Samaria, um, early in St. John's Gospel. It's five and a half years since I retired I retired at the age of 41, <coughs> although on a bad morning, I seem to think that I was born in the year that King Uzziah died. The fluctuations can be quite considerable. Um, and when I retired, or in preparation for my retirement, um, I decided that I was going to give pretty much all of my library, several thousand volumes, away. And I had visited Fiji um, some years before that, they had a, a seminary they had just built with a lovely library, but very few books in it. So my theological library now is in Suva, in Fiji. Um, I decided to keep only my poetry and key novels, literature. My early studies were in literature rather than theology. And I just felt that 
studying Alexander Pope, William Wordsworth, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, uh, Tennyson, and all the others, at the age of 18, when you haven't yet lived a life, is never really to understand the pathos or the depth of the literature that we're obliged for our degree studies to do at that early age. And so I thought I'd read them all again and see if now that I'm 41, um, whether um, I have greater insight and whether they speak to me in different ways. And I've not regretted that. I mention all that and I start in that way, um, largely because um, St. John's Gospel, for someone who is a literary person, as I like to think I am, is the gospel of all gospels. Uh, there's such ample evidence of someone with editing and writing skills, a mind, a literary mind, behind the unfolding of the chapters right through to chapter 21. And um, that has always intrigued me, always. And on a day like today, when we are here to um, look at the woman in Samaria, we're offered uh, contact with one of the thematic uh, forces of nature that John is trying to lay before his readers. There's a literary aspect to it, and I hope I don't bore the socks off you, um, so just steal yourselves for the fact that you're going to have a little bit of that in the next few minutes. But it, it matters. Um, there's, uh, the story is familiar enough. Jesus comes in Samaria on his way to Galilee, uh, he stops because he's thirsty. It's the middle of the day. Um, a bucket is uh, dropped in, uh, into the well. Uh, there's a woman there. Can I have some water? Uh, the shades of meaning between um, H2O, the, the, the physical attributes of water, and living water are in play, deliberately so, reminding me, of course, of a couplet of, from William Blake, now, William Blake, I just think the world of, when we lived at Wesley's Chapel, which we did for 21 years, um, our bedroom, Margaret is here this morning, I'm delighted that we can both come to this service. Um, Margaret sort of got out of bed in her own way, but I won't uh, disclose, I've got a, a non-disclosure um, sort of uh, document about all of that. Um, but I sprang out of bed because in the winter, when the leaves weren't on the trees, I could look out of our bedroom window across the Bunhill Field Cemetery and see the last resting place of William Blake. Well, what wouldn't someone give for that? And when I was an undergraduate, one of the questions on my degree papers was, William Blake says, the cistern contains, but the fountain overflows. Discuss. Well, the cistern contains. We all know what a cistern is. The water you put in it takes the shape of the cistern. It's contained within it. That's what the cistern is there for. Indeed, you don't want leaks at all. It has to be solid containing. But the fountain, there ain't no such consideration. The fountain just bubbles and bubbles and bubbles with life. Now, that's exactly what's at, at the heart of the story this morning that Canley read a moment ago. The difference between an understanding of water that can 
have water contained within a chemical formula and water that is of the essence of life. And in these days when so many countries in the world are suffering from famine, and where indeed I heard uh, farming today, just two days ago, uh, where they were talking about water levels in East Anglia being 40% of where they should be at this time, they're having to plant sugar beet instead of carrots. What will my dinners be like when the harvest is in, I wonder? So, you have the water of life as opposed to water in its chemical sense. Now, that's what the story's all about. But you see, the story stands in a sequence, and I, I can't help it. I mean, I may never be invited to Westminster Central Hall again, but I've got to give you the whole thing now I've started. It is one of four steps that are quite deliberately placed like stepping stones through the gospel. It starts in John chapter 2, and it's the wedding feast at Cana. You remember that? The wine ran out. We had a lovely dinner in our house two nights ago, and I'm very glad to say that the wine didn't run out. Um, I was the Lord, but I couldn't have done anything about it if it had. So, um, the wine ran out, and Jesus, his mother, says to him, hey, do something about this. And he said to her, woman, gune, in Greek, a sharp retort from a boy to his mother. And I've often had people say to me, well, Jesus wouldn't speak like that to his mother, would he? There's no mother in this congregation who's had a son who hasn't had her son speak to her like that. Or if they have, they must talk to me afterwards, and I'll put in a recommendation to the honors system. They're taking anybody these days um, and see that you get angels' wings. So, Cana of Galilee. And what did Jesus say? My hour has not yet come. You come to chapter 4 in Samaria, and you've got the whole business of the discussion about uh, uh, he's trying to get the woman see, to see things a bit more deeply than, than she seems able to, and he's pushing her and probing. Um, and in the conversation that happens when the disciples, the, she says, don't expect any, he says, There's no, don't expect any more from this conversation than that because my hour has not yet come. So, not in Cana in Galilee, nor in Jacob's well in Samaria. We go to chapter 7, and we find that Jesus, having been urged to go to Judea by his disciples, he's got a bit of a reputation by now, to defend his corner, decides not to. So, they go on their own. But he comes up in secret, without telling anybody, and here's the controversy that's being caused by the sorts of things he's been saying. Now, what I want Jesus to say when he overhears people accusing him of saying this and doing that is to say, well, I know it's not in my contract, but I am freelance, you see, so I can say what I like, if you've got my general meaning. <laughs> and he does say what he likes. Um, and, uh, um, and they push him, and they got him in a corner, and out he comes with it once again to say, my hour has not yet come. Not in Cana of Galilee, not at Jacob's well in Samaria, not in Judea for the Feast of Booths as their harvest festival. Jews live under, sort of in, in the open air if they can, at Succoth it's called. 
uh, not in that minor feast. So we're still waiting. Will the moment come when we have it revealed that his hour has come? And of course, in chapter 12, it has. In chapter 12, it's not the Feast of Booths. It's Passover, the great festival when everybody comes to sacrifice in the temple um, and to, to, to have a national gathering. Uh, the place is heaving with people. Jerusalem, the city of peace, the capital, David's city. And that's where we're not quite... You know, I preached on that when I was a student at Wesley House in Cambridge on that particular story when I preached my sermon. And afterwards, we had a rather strange habit in my theological college days. Um, you, you preached your sermon in chapel, all your fellow students and all the teachers headed by the principal, Dr. Gordon Rupp, who was a man not to mess around with in terms of his scholarship. And afterwards, you all in your gowns, and even your mortarboards, if you had one, trooped off to the dining room to have your dinner, where the preacher had to sit next to the principal and be entertained in learned theological discussion whilst he was trying to chew a bit of gristly beef. And then when the dinner was over, once again in procession, we trooped back to the large lecture room where they would discuss the sermon they heard. First of all, all the students chipped in, and then you had the teachers up to the pinnacle, Dr. Rupp himself. But one of my fellow students was angry with something I'd said. I don't say things that make people angry, do I? Uh, well, you have to speak to my wife afterwards about that. But it, it was because I had omitted the salient detail. There were some Greeks at the festival. The Greeks, the Greeks, he said, spat the words out. The Greeks. Well, I thought Zorba the Greek. Um, I thought all, uh, is, it, is, is, it, is it all the great playwrights and thinkers from Greece? No, it was the Greece, Greeks who were in Jerusalem on that day, that Passover day. It was the fact that it was not only Jews on their special day, but it was also Greeks. The arithmetic of the New Testament is clear about it. Jews plus Greeks equals everybody because Greeks are Gentiles in general. So it was a representative group in Jerusalem of the whole of humanity. And then it was that Jesus said, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it shall remain alone. But if it dies, it will burst forth with new life. A truth, of course, which we all understand. And that's when the hour of Jesus was said to have come. Now, back to William Blake for a moment, because uh, I'm very fond of him. I've already said that. Uh, there's a, a quatrain, uh, four lines of verse that are imprinted on my heart. And they tell the difference between those of us whose lives we're obliged to live at the, at the surface level with the evidential, material, empirical facts of life and the capacity of the human spirit to live a life more deeply than that. This is what Blake said. He says, to see a world in a grain of sand or a universe 
in a wild flower, to hold infinity in the palm of your hand, to sense eternity in a single hour. That capacity within the human spirit to see, and as Jesus put it, to really see. Let those who have eyes, let them see. Not just see with the optic nerve twitching, but see in the sense of the blind man in John chapter 9. I see, now I see, I see and I understand, I see and I believe. Seeing in its deepest sense. Let those who have ears hear. Oh, we hear lots. But how much of it do we hear with ears that know how to hear? The tones of voice, the nuances, the body language, whatever turmoil is in, in the person speaking that is telling us a story that isn't contained in the mere words that come out of their mouth. To be able to live a life with that level of heightened awareness so that not only do we deal with things as we find them, meet the commitments of our diary, do what has to be done, but we feel the stirrings of our deepest self. We find fellow feeling for another who has communicated to us more deeply than mere words. It was the Ghanaian lady at Wesley's Chapel who helped me with a bit of that when she said, oh, people are very polite in Britain. They're very nice and courteous, but I can tell the difference, she said, between the smile that comes from the mouth and the smile that comes from the heart. Now, John is helping people to see, and seeing and believing is one of the main themes of John's gospel, and in this story it's there. When the woman has reduced the dynamic of the situation to the depth of the well and to a bucket how often do we trivialize our life's experiences in whatever it is, is the equivalent of a bucket? So that it's just got to be got through. Just a pile of more things to face. Yet other instances where we have to somehow survive. When all the time, there's another story being told. There's another level being plumbed. There's more and more evidence of who we really were made to be. Now, there's another theme, and I won't spend much time on that, it's associated with these verses. Jesus' hour didn't come when he merely had to do something in the local village, nor indeed, in a more international sense, when he was there with the Samaritan woman in Samaria, nor in Judea with fellow Jews, but... His hour had come on the universal level. It's humankind in front of him, for his message is addressed to all and everyone across the ages. And how often do we, in our Christian witness, limit our readiness to present ourselves or to operate at the, the village pump level? Or congratulate ourselves if we can say, oh, I've got someone of a different ethnic group who's my friend, as if that itself was enough. 
or even to have caught the ear of my fellow religionaries and people from my ethnic group, and I've been able to tell them something they didn't know before. No. In a place like this, I dare say it, the task before us is to be all things to all people. It is to be deeply human in all circumstances. It's to glory in the fact that we are not reduced to being mere automata to survive, but men and women, boys and girls, with whom an inner life gives form to our expression, our manner of behaving, our interaction. Now, if that lesson isn't learned in a place like this, I don't know where it will be. And the same was true at Wesley's Chapel in the 21 years I was there, where our strapline was above and beyond ethnicity. The real celebration, as we struggled with racism and all of that, um, was for us all to help each other to recognize the profound way in which what we have in common as members of the human race is what determines us and the way we live. And if Jesus didn't do it, who on earth did? So, that's my little message for today. I just wish all of you well in your daily lives and pray, God, that you may find in yourselves resources that will bring smiles to the faces of those you meet, encouragement to those around whose shoulder you put your arm, a gladness to be alive to those who are in the doldrums and in despair. That's your job. It's my job. It's our job. God help us. Amen.